Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at the feasts. Who who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The chapter began with an illustration in verses one through twelve. Jesus related a parable of the vineyard to illustrate his rejection by the religious leaders and by the nation of Israel. The chapter continued with a series of confrontations, questions about paying tribute or taxes in verses 13 through 17, about marriage and the resurrection in verses 18 through 27, about the greatest commandment in verses 28 through 34, and then another question about Jesus as the son of David in verses 35 through 37. Confrontation will give way to condemnation as Jesus issues two very strong warnings. The first having to do with the pride of living in verses 38, 39 and 40 and later the pride of giving in verses 41 through 44. You'll remember that the religious leaders were outwardly righteous But they were inwardly corrupt. In Texas, they have a saying. In the first service, I said, he's all hat and no ranch. And somebody corrected me and said, that's not the way you say it in Texas. It's he's all hat and no cattle. And I go, okay, you're from Texas. I'll defer to you. But in this passage, Jesus will bring up six things to guard against. Six troubling things that were indications of a permanent problem, if you will. The problem of pride, the problem of self-exaltation, the problem of hypocrisy, the problem of greed, the problem of insincerity. They loved peculiarity. Look at the long flowing robes, popularity, greetings in the marketplace Prominence, the chief seats, priority, the uppermost room, possessions, devouring widows' houses, and a kind of pseudo-piety, a pretense, if you will, of religiosity. And so, in verse 38, look what it says. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes. Who desire to go around in long robes. Do you remember where you are? It's the temple. Do you remember what day it is? It's Tuesday. Do you remember who his audience is? It uh, is the disciples who have followed him. Remember he has answered and asked a series of questions. And now... Jesus is speaking to his disciples and Jesus will draw attention to the scribes and remember who they are. They are the experts in the Jewish law. And Jesus says, beware of the scribes. And by the way, the word beware means way more than be careful 
or I want to warn you. It's that and both. It means to watch. It means to see. It means to observe intently. And Jesus is inviting his disciples to look with scrutiny upon the scribes. He is warning the disciples to guard against the evil influences that are manifest in their lives and their so-called ministries. Someone has said that behavior is a mirror. In which we show our image. You probably grew up in a world, a world where your mother, father, grandparents said actions speak louder than words. You know how it is. That people are going to pay way more attention to what you do than what you say. And you'll remember in the very earlier verse, in verse 37, um, when Jesus said, Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is it that he's a son? And the common people heard him gladly. The common people are willing to listen to what Jesus says. So remember, the audience is three different audiences. Those who are willing to listen to Jesus and hear him gladly. Those who refuse to listen to Jesus, ignore what he has to say. And then there are the people who are outright enemies, hostile to what Jesus had to say. And I know it may be hard for any of you to believe that Jesus would have an enemy in the world. But he does. He's already made them. They're committed to killing him. You're probably a person who doesn't really want to have enemies. But you do. The Bible says that no, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you walk in his will and in his way, the world is at enmity with you. Your flesh is an adversity. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But your enemies are energized by those things. They will oppose you and stand in opposition to you. And it's hard to believe that Jesus has an enemy. But soon the religious leaders will solicit the Roman Empire to arrest Jesus and execute Jesus. He will die before we come to the next several chapters. The Lord Jesus is so patient with sinners. The Lord Jesus is so sensitive to the needy, but he will publicly condemn and openly expose those who use religion as a pretext to prey on others. Jesus has no patience with the person who pretends to love God, but in fact loves religion. And they've substituted religiosity for a right relationship with Jesus. Because it gets them notice, or it gets them honor, or it gets them a job. The Lord Jesus will have some severe words. By the way, what exactly is Jesus condemning? And I think you know the answer. It is religious hypocrisy. Francis Bacon wrote, a bad man is worse when he pretends to be a saint. And Shakespeare in that very famous play, Hamlet, has Hamlet saying, Act 5, Scene 1, Page 4, that one may smile and smile and be a villain. 
If you grew up with in the TV generation like me, we used to watch a show called Lost in Space. It was the Robinsons. It was a takeoff on the Swiss family Robinson. It was set in the future where the Swiss family or where the, the, the Robinson family are, are going from planet to planet and place to place. And there's an evil doctor on board and he smiles and he is a wimp and he is a coward. And when he smiles, you know that he is disguising an evil heart. And so when Jesus says, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, the robes were robes of nobility. But in the case of the scribes, it also spoke of their position and their scholarship. They were robes that marked a special occasion. And James, you might, if we've got that picture of the scribes. Yeah, you see, you would know them. You would spot them. You would see who they are and the way that they dress. Think cardigan sweaters with leather elbow patches. If you see a guy with a pipe and a cardigan sweater with leather elbow patches, you think, oh, this must be a professor. This must be a smart guy. Well, think graduation robes. Or think a judge. Can you imagine you are in a judge's court? He's wearing his long robes. He invites people to honor him and say and and express honor to him. And now imagine the judge leaves the bench. He keeps his robe and he goes to King Supers and he's in the frozen food section. And he expects you. Look, when I'm at King Supers, I expect you to call me judge. I expect you to respect me. Well, see, this is part of the idea. These people didn't wear their graduation robes just simply on graduation. Think Armani suits. Think $8,000 Armani suits. Think of wide-eyed and pleasant-looking TV evangelists who are wearing their suits, and you know that whatever tithes and offerings are going to those suits. Now, here's part of the point. When you have these long robes, it's unsuitable for everyday labor. And the scribes would never, ever have been expected to conduct themselves with everyday labor. So, again, what is Jesus condemning? Jesus is condemning the religious leaders who draw undue attention to themselves by the way that they dress. And I think that there's two equal and opposite problems that we can fall into where we dress in such a way that we attract attention, but we also dress in such a way to go, don't look at me. I think both are equally wrong. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 through 39, the children of Israel were commanded to wear fringes of blue on the borders of their garments. They resembled tassels and they were supposed to be a daily reminder of the commandments of God. But in Matthew's gospel, we read, quote, in Matthew 23, 5, everything they do is done to be seen of men and they make broad their phylacteries. That's the tassels. They enlarge the borders of their garment instead of just a tiny strip of blue it would be a wave of blue so that you could see him coming it would be like the christian who has this gigantic bible the size of a coffee table 
When I first became a Christian, you know, usually you could tell a person's spirituality by how big their Bible was. Can you imagine you put your Bible in a wheel uh, in a wheelbarrow when you're coming to Bible study? Look, it has every single note and commentary ever made. Well, hey, you know, it's great to have resources, but it's another thing to draw undue attention to yourself. And that's the red flag that Jesus is warning against. When a person brings undue attention to themselves, that's a problem. And so Jesus continues, who love greetings in the marketplaces. But the religious hypocrite isn't just simply satisfied with their own simple self-importance and, and attention. They want praise. They love the praises of men. Religious hypocrites love to hear the public praise as people bow in respect and admiration. And this isn't just the simple greeting based on culture and courtesy. This isn't seeing the pastor at Costco or whatever at King Supers and you go, oh, look, there's the pastor. He's buying groceries like a real human being. When they were in the marketplace, they would they would say, Rabbi, oh, it is such an honor to see you. And they loved the people's respect and admiration, the fawning, gushing accolades in public. And remember, the term rabbi meant my great one. It meant master or Lord or my teacher. And the problem was many took it to heart. They began to see themselves not just simply as the great one or the master or the Lord, but they adopted the, the title as a title of superiority in order to contrast the inferiority with everyone around them. They desired admiration and respect to translate into public recognition. And it still becomes a problem. Even today, you know, one of the real rewards, if you will, of being a Calvary pastor is most Calvary pastors don't take it seriously. I mean, I have some friends like Raul Reese and Mike McIntosh who have since earned their doctorate degree. But there's just something crazy about calling Raul Reese Dr. Raul. Dr. Raul Reese. And you just go, it's raw. You know, I work with the FBI and they require cards and they made me put reverend on there. And I started laughing. Chaplain, why are you laughing? I go, have you ever actually looked up the word reverend in the dictionary? And then I did for them. Deserving reverence, relating to or characteristics of the clergy, clerical, reverend, abbreviated rev, used as a title, a form of address for certain clerics in many Christian churches. In other words, in that first designation, deserving reverence, some pastors and teachers think that's exactly right. You ought to treat me this way. I was watching a United States senator chastising a military officer. She was asking a question and in courtesy and respect, he said, no, ma'am. 
And she had a fit. She blew up and she said, I am a United States senator. And please, it took me a long time in order to acquire that title. So from now on, refer to me as senator. You know, you're in trouble when you go into a church and the pastor has to wear a sign that says, I'm the pastor. You actually know that you're in trouble if you're on the job and the boss has to constantly remind you that he or she is the boss. And this becomes part of the problem. Is it wrong to address the clergy with respect? No. Is it wrong to use the title reverend? No. The painful problem comes when the title is believed by the person to such an extent that they elevate themselves and they put themselves in a position of preeminence and prominence and priority. Look what it says. And they want the best seats in the synagogues. You know, the ruins of synagogues survive even to this day. If you ever have an opportunity to go with us to Israel, we will go to Jerusalem. We'll go to the Galilee. We'll visit Capernaum. This was Jesus's headquarters for his ministry. And if you go even to this day to Capernaum, there is marble walls and there is the seat of the synagogue, there is a black basalt synagogue. On top of that is a marble synagogue. The seat of the elders exists to this very day. And it perfectly illustrates the text. It was set apart from the other benches. It occupied the place of prominence at right angles to the seat of the sanctuary. To sit in this seat was an honor and a privilege. And the seat was always located near the chest. Where the Torah scroll was held. And so you could see who had the position of honor. Who had the position of praise. Because their seat would be located right next to the seat of the Torah scroll. Ivor Powell writes, quote, It was one of the reasons why they detested the teaching of Jesus. He taught that those who aspired to be great should be willing to serve. He that is great among you, let him be the least. But they were taught that he who would be great will just really be great and exercise that greatness. And that was part of the point. And so he says, beware of seeking prominence. Beware of seeking priority. Look what else it says. The best places at feasts. In the King James it says the uppermost rooms at the feast. The word translated best places or uppermost rooms is very difficult in our own culture and society. It's proto, klesias. It means the first reclining place. Remember in the ancient world, they didn't have a table and chairs like we have a table and chairs. Every Sunday after church, uh, my family in New Orleans, we would go to my grandma and grandpa's house and they have a very modest table. But at the front of the table, that the head of the table, that's where my grandpa sat. He sat at the head of the table. And so we use that term, the head of the table, but in the ancient world, they would recline. They would sit from head to foot, from head to foot, from head to foot. And later on in Mark, when we see Jesus's life coming to a dramatic close and they come to that time of what's called the Last Supper, 
Judas is to the left and John is to the right. John is reclining his head in Jesus's chest and Judas is sitting to his immediate left. These were the places of dignity. These were the places of prominence. And so the scribes would look for the place to be located immediately right of the host or immediately left to the of the host. If you were a king to sit at the right hand of the king or the left hand of the king was the place of prominence. The religious leaders were looking for the honors that are bestowed by men. And they willingly ignored the honors that were bestowed by God. And that became the real problem. Is it wrong to be honored? No. Is it wrong to pay tribute or to honor someone for a job well done? Of course not. Well, what is the problem? It's where you want those honors more than you want the honor of God. You're looking to be seen by men instead of seen by God. You're wanting the titles that men offer rather than the title that God offers. Like saint. Like child. Chosen. Adopted. Accepted. These are the titles that Jesus offers to the person who's willing to come to him. St. John Climacus used the analogy in the 7th century of climbing a ladder in order to achieve spiritual maturity. And he wrote, quote, just as anyone who climbs a rotten ladder risks his life, so are honors and power a danger for humility. And so he encouraged the people, don't try to climb a rotten ladder, which is only going to cause you to plummet to your death. And so prominence and priority also leads to possessions. Look at verse 40, who devour widows houses. You all know what a widow is. This is a person who has lost her husband. And of course, a girl, a woman who has lost her husband is vulnerable to exploitation. Some have argued that Jesus's condemnation is unwarranted or unfounded because scribes were forbidden by law to accept payment from widows. And so they said, oh, this must be some sort of Jesus exaggeration. But apparently the religious leaders did find other ways to suggest support or payment. It's just like today where people say, this doesn't cost you anything, but hey, we're suggesting a donation of whatever. Well, guess what? Surprise them someday and don't give them anything. And see if it really is a donation. But apparently some of the religious leaders found ways around the law to provide support and payment. Some have suggested that the religious leaders, because they are scribes and because they are are lawyers, they would act in the capacity of a state planner. And they would say, hey, guess what we're going to do? I understand that you have a problem and you have need and you need someone to divvy up your husband's estate. And I'll just make sure that your husband's affairs are dealt with in appropriate way at an extravagant fee. And so they would pay themselves a healthy amount of money. Imagine a group of people who love honor and they love praise and they love 
money. And Jesus says, I need to warn you. You know, I'm going to suggest that most of you are as disgusted as Jesus was by spiritual hypocrisy. And I'm glad. He talks about them and then look what he says in verse 40 at the end. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. By the way, the long prayers were meant to demonstrate devotion to God. Remember what prayer fundamentally is. It's talking to God. It's having a communication and speech with God. But remember, communication is shared understanding. Jesus calls it a pretense. Why? Because it's pretended piety. It's pretended religiosity. Their real desire wasn't to speak to God. It was to be thought of as holy and religious, God honoring followers of the law of Moses and the commandments of God. And so that becomes the problem. They're not praying to God. And Jesus even uses that as an illustration later. And elsewhere in the New Testament where he pictures two people, a religious leader and a sinner praying and the sinner is beating his chest and saying, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. And the religious leader is praying, thank you, Lord, that I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you, Lord, that I'm a man and not a woman. Thank you, Lord, that I am righteous and I keep the laws and I'm not like this jerk right next to me, clearly a filthy sinner. And Jesus said that the one prayed to God and was justified and the one prayed to himself. In other words, his prayer wasn't a real prayer. It was never heard by God. A story is told of the White House and a dinner, not the current president, by the way. And the president was giving a meal and he invited a man to pray at a White House dinner. And the man began to pray. And as he prayed, the president said, speak up, man, I can't hear you. And he said, no disrespect, Mr. President, but I wasn't talking to you. Yeah. I did hear the president Our presidents say, contrary to popular belief, I wasn't born in a manger. The only time he actually publicly talked about where he was born, he said, I was born on the planet Krypton. You know, this is part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is to ask and answer the question, is it okay to have some fun? And the answer is yes. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that it's never a good idea to pretend to be holy when you're not. To pretend to be righteous when you're not. To substitute pride for humility. And look what it says in the text. In the King James Version it says, And these shall receive greater damnation. Yeah, it's in the Bible. In the New Living Translation, it says, because of this, their punishment will be greater, whether you opt for the more severe translation or the less severe translation. The passage seems to indicate and you can't escape the meaning that there are lesser and greater degrees of punishment and the lesser and the greater degree of punishment is going to be in direct proportion to pride and hypocrisy. 
In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte or convert. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself. Does it shock you? Does it surprise you that Jesus believed that the religious hypocrites would stand before God in the day of judgment and they would have to give an answer to God? For their hypocrisy. For their pretense. However much people may argue about the existence of hell or how long you remain there or what goes on when you are in there. Jesus of Nazareth believed in the reality of hell and preached about it and warned about it and begged people to flee from the wrath that would come. And so now all of a sudden we begin to understand why Jesus draws such particular attention and warning. Again, Ivor Powell writes, all preachers who dilute or deny the message or are basically advertising their stupidity. And so you should ask yourself this question. Why is the punishment for religious leaders so much more severe? It's because they are in part responsible for instructing people and discipling people. The religious leader who saddles someone with petty rules, who lives a lifestyle of greed and then encourages others to do so, who lives deceitfully, whose behavior oppresses and misleads people, they're going to incur the stricter judgment. No wonder Jesus points to to himself and he says, come and learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. Warren Wearsby writes, quote, if a person is important only because of the uniform he wears or the title he bears or the office he holds, that his importance is artificial. It is character that makes a person valuable and nobody can give you character. You have to develop yourself as you walk in with God. And the truth is, there's two things that you'll never be responsible for salvation and sanctification. You can't save yourself. Only God can save you. You can't sanctify yourself. Only the Holy Spirit can do that process of sanctification. But you can make the choice to do what's right rather than what's wrong. To walk in the light rather than the darkness. Character, by the way, is what you do in the dark. Character is what you do when no one else is looking. And so what are our instructions as Christians? Be careful if you're trying to make a good impression for all the wrong reasons. And by the way, is it wrong to make a good impression? Of course not. But what is the problem? It's when you simply want to leave the person disconnected by impressing them with something that just simply isn't true. There's nothing inherently wrong. With reading your Bible. There's nothing wrong with praying in public or in private. There's nothing wrong with conducting religious services in a public setting. The real danger is if we do these things in order to be noticed or in order to be honored. And so the measure of a man's real character is what he would do even if it didn't matter if he ever was found out. 
You see, your character is different from your reputation. Your character is what God knows you to be. And your reputation is what men think you to be. And so, are you loving and living for Jesus when no one is looking? One of the great objections to both church and Christ is this thorny issue of personal hypocrisy. And I know you've talked with mom and dad and brothers and sisters and family and friends. And you said, hey, why don't you come to church? And they go, I don't want to go to church. It's filled with hypocrites. And you say, well, you could stand one more. (laughs) Billy Sunday famously preached. Hypocrites. In the church, yes. And in the lodge and in the home, don't hunt through the church for a hypocrite. Go home and look in the mirror. Hypocrites, yes. See that you make the number one less. And so how do you do that? How do you avoid these danger? We've been talking about religious hypocrisy, but hypocrisy takes two different forms, doesn't it? It's regular hypocrisy and religious hypocrisy. In order to deal with it, I'm going to suggest to you it requires a great big dose of humility. Humility doesn't seek the limelight or the throne. Humility insists that I don't deserve anything. And therefore, it takes with gratitude whatever comes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 and 13. Remember, Paul writes, in prison, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am. And he didn't mean the state of Texas. He meant The circumstances that he found himself in, in whatever state I'm in, to be content, verse 12, I know how to be abased. That means I know how to be put down and I know how to abound. I know how to be elevated and I know how to be subjugated everywhere and on all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Humility sings the song. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Humility walks consistently And loves generously and serves willingly and acts meekly and forgives heartily, forbears thoughtfully, responds obediently. Humility is more likely to join the secret service and keep the secret. Humility wears the badge of grace and obedience. In what sense? In the sense that the scripture says, humble yourself. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, it doesn't just simply say, humble yourself. It says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Why is that important? Because guess what? If you are humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, then you are you understand something. You understand that the hand of God is above you and you are beneath the hand of God. 
And when the hand of God is above you and you are beneath the hand of God, then guess what? You can yoke yourself in Jesus to God's will and you begin to understand what it means to be meek and lowly in heart in Matthew chapter 11 verse 29. And this is the paradox. This is the paradox. To even talk about humility is really proof of a lack of its possession. But when you walk with Jesus... And that's what you're doing. You're simply walking with Jesus. You're going in the direction that Jesus is going. You're watching him. You're following him. You're watching him. You're following him. You're watching him and you're going the direction that he is going. You don't even know it. Paul wrote, In lowliness of mind, let each other esteem others better than themselves. How interesting. We are to see the best in others. And so Paul writes, he says, look for what's best in them and then look for what's worse in you. And if you do that, you should be fine because self-contemplation often leads to self-congratulation. And when self-contemplation leads to self-congratulation, then you almost certainly are going to be in danger of bloating. And I don't mean anatomically. And so, the Bible says that Jesus humbled himself. Paul wrote, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you realize in the New Testament there are three commands of Jesus? Believe in me. Abide in me. Follow me. Believe in me. Abide in me. Follow me. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Tentatively. The disciples are going to follow Jesus on Wednesday and they're going to follow Jesus on Thursday. But make no mistake about it. Following Jesus is going to lead to a cross. It's going to lead to an execution. It's going to lead to a crucifixion, but it's also going to lead to a resurrection. And so, look all the way back to the beginning. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. What's the answer? You have to be clothed in humility. This will be maybe the first and the last time I'll ever invite everyone in church to take their clothes off. Metaphorically speaking. To take off the robes of self-righteousness. And to put on a robe of righteousness that's clothed with humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, be clothed with humility. Now, here's the problem. You can't buy this suit of, at Kohl's with Kohl's dollars. But I, I need to tell you something. Even though you can't buy it at Kohl's, you can't buy it at JCPenney, you can't buy it at the department store... It's always on sale. It's always in fashion. It never wears out. It always looks good. It's recognized by men. It's admired by angels. It's appreciated by God. And you can see when other people are wearing it. And you can say, oh, that looks nice. That's so very attractive. 
The scribes loved popularity and praise and possessions. What is it that you love? The scribes loved success and they loved to be served. What is it that you desire? The scribes or the religious leaders focused on the failures of others. But they were unwilling to admit their own spiritual need. The scribes were self-righteous. They looked down on others. And so they were unwilling to esteem others better than themselves. How about you? Are you overwhelmed with your spiritual need? I ran across a little thing that I keep in my Bible. It's called The Heart God Revives. It's by Nancy Lee DeMoss, and it contrasts the characteristics of proud people and and broken people. It quotes Psalm 51:17. It says, "The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." And then on the left-hand side it has proud people. They focus on the failure of others. Broken people, they're overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Proud people, critical, fault-finding. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but they look at their own with a telescope. The broken person, compassionate. They can forgive much because they know that they've been forgiven much. The self-righteous, they look down on others. The broken people, they esteem others better than themselves. The the proud people, they're independent and self-sufficient. Broken people, they're dependent because they recognize not only their need for God, but their need for others. Proud people desire to be served. Broken people are motivated to serve others. Proud people want self-advancement. Broken people want to promote others. And so Jesus says, I want you to watch. And I want you to watch carefully. I want you to see what they do. And I want you to, to warn you of why it's such a big problem. But guess what? The invitation to believe in Jesus, to abide in Jesus, to follow Jesus, will bring them on a journey that's going to eventually lead to brokenness and dependence. But we'll have more to talk about that when next we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your promises. And rarely do we thank you for the warnings, for the heads up. Lord, sometimes you will cause us to dwell on another person's behavior, not for the purpose of imitating that behavior, but for the purpose of avoiding it all at all costs. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray. That we ourselves would not be guilty of either religious hypocrisy or the more garden variety shade of hypocrisy. But that, Lord, we would genuinely, truly desire you. That, Lord, we would remember what the psalmist said when David said that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. 
and a broken and a contrite heart you would not despise. So, Lord, we understand that each and every one of us are in big danger. And that the only cure seems to be a massive dose of humility. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who, again, finds himself or herself empty. Lord, I pray that you would fill them up. For that person who finds themselves in a dark place. Lord, I pray that you would give them light. And for the person who finds themselves in a guilty place, that they would be willing to admit that they were wrong and that they would cry out for forgiveness and that they would long to experience your touch, your grace, your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.